Before we begin, I would just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we live. I pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging and recognise their rich culture that lives on in our country today. Where I'm recording this podcast is the land of the Ghana people. Welcome to another episode of the LiveWire Podcast. I'm your host, Tristan LW, and I've stepped away from reading my Kindle to bring you this, the 35th episode. A huge welcome to you if this is the first time you found the LiveWire Podcast. Here on the podcast, we celebrate the online community of young people living with a serious illness or disability at livewire.org.au. If you're not yet a member, you can head along to create an account where you'll be able to talk to other young people in our chat rooms, share what's happening in your world on our news feed, join groups relating to your interests, and participate in fantastic competitions and live streams. The Live Ride podcast is designed to keep you connected to the community wherever you may be. You might be travelling to school or uni, waiting around in the hospital, chatting with other members in our chat room, or in the background as you write a story. On this episode, the fantastic Tommy LW has a chat with the team from CHIPS, peer support program from the Royal Children's Hospital in Victoria. We also dive back into the vault and replay our interview from a couple of years ago from renowned author Jackie French. But as always, first up, let's jump into the community roundup. On the last episode, we told you about our Livewire theme song competition. Well, it was an absolute blast and we got lots of really fantastic entries. So the gang from Livewire RCH have got all of our entries together and created one epic theme song. So a big thank you to Erin Jane, Tally Tapper and 20 Talaya 2 for your entries. Let's uh, take a listen to see how it turned out. Live wire. 
like reading books or playing games, listening to music, watching movies, drawing, singing, photography too. Likewise, place for me and you. It's a place a stick it to me, chat about anything and be happy. Friday Night Live, where I miss the squiggle, this or that, catch those two. Absolutely amazing. Now we've got a new competition happening on LiveWire right now. For the month of August, we're hosting a storytelling competition. So if you're feeling a little bit creative and inspired, get typing and send us through your story to LiveWire at starlight.org.au. Every entry that we receive, we'll be getting their very own Amazon Kindle. How cool is that? But if, like me, you suffer from a crazy case of writer's block when you sit down to a computer, the fantastic Laurie LW wrote up some great tips to get you started. First up, just write. It doesn't matter what. The first thing, or even the first hundred things you write, don't have to be great. No one else ever has to read them. Also, it doesn't have to be a story. In fact, stories can be really hard to write at first. Maybe you would prefer to write poetry. Maybe you need to work up to writing stories. Start writing a journal of your own thoughts is a really good place to start. Just write down whatever comes to you in any format you like. Next, write badly. Again, your writing doesn't have to be good. It can be full of spelling mistakes. It could be a story that doesn't make sense. You can go back and tidy it up later or move on to something else. Practice, practice, practice. Write as often as you can. Set aside half an hour every day to write. Some people swear by doing this first thing in the morning, as soon as they get out of bed. Others are more night hours. Find a time that feels good for writing and stick to it. If you want to write stories, you can just start with the building blocks of them. Write dot points of what will happen. Write down the lore of your fantasy universe. Little things add up into bigger, fleshed out stories. If having trouble writing character, flex your character building skills by making mood boards, playlists, or videos related to them. But most of all, have fun. Whatever you're writing, it is supposed to be fun. So take little steps at a time. Don't worry about your writing being good. Just get words on the screen and the rest will come. I hope that helps and get writing. Remember to send through your entries to livewire at starlight.org.au by the 31st of August. Look forward to reading all of your fantastic entries. All right, now I'm going to hand over to Tommy for our feature interview for this episode. We are live, my friends. Um, welcome. I have on the line with me, Harry and Beck, uh, two of the leaders of CHIPS, and Curtis, one of the uh, participants of CHIPS, uh, known as Chippers, I believe, uh, but you can you can tell us more about that soon. Uh, so, guys, first of all, I'm going to start off with Harry. Can you tell us a bit about CHIPS, mate? Tell us, give us a lowdown. What is it? What do you guys do? Yeah, no worries. Thanks, Tommy. Um, 
Well, CHIP stands for Chronic Illness Peer Support. And as the name suggests, we are a peer program for young people who have different chronic illnesses. Uh, from the age of 12 to 25, we take participants and we're run through the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, which is where we know you from, of course. Um, over a calendar year, we do lots of things to bring young people together so they can spend time with each other and um, hopefully develop some friendships and support each other through their challenges that they face. When COVID isn't ruling the world, um, we meet up in person and we do social events. Um, we run a couple of camps a year. We do creative activities, which is what we're kind of going to chat about a bit more today. Uh, we, we make a ma magazine every year. We raise money for the program and for the, through the hospital foundation stuff. Lots of fun stuff. At the moment, we've we shoved everything online. So we're doing lots of interaction through our Facebook page. We have a closed Facebook community. We're doing trivia events. We're doing weekly or co bi-weekly catch-ups. Fortnightly catch-ups is what I'm looking for. I'm calling them chips for lunch, where we're just kind of hanging out and checking in with everyone and seeing how we're going. We visit the young people if they're on the ward. Uh, young people in the program come say good day. I think we've got awesome. a lot of young people in chips who are also linked in with LiveEye, which is pretty cool. So a lot of them know what LiveEye is. Yeah, there's um, there's definitely that crossover, and it's it's chips is probably the biggest program, or at least one of the biggest programs our LiveEye team works with and just kind of you know, gets along with and sees crossover with. Thanks, man. I'll put it over to you now, Beck, because you I know Curtis is working on this as well, but uh, yeah, you're spearheading the short film project which is going on at the moment. Yeah, yeah, sure. So we have a Chips Creative Group which we run every year and we've done all sorts of different projects in the past. We've done music recordings and last year we did a musical. But this year we thought we'd work on making and filming a short film and then entering it into the Focus on Ability Film Festival, which is a short film festival. I think the limit is five minutes for a film and that has to have a disability slash ability focus. Yeah, so the young people in the group have written a fantastic script, but obviously, unfortunately, due to COVID, we can't get together to film it at this point. So currently, we're working on a new script, which is going to be all filmed via Zoom and all done in an online space. So we've got two projects on the go. Hopefully, after COVID restrictions lift, then we can film the first one, which is a really powerful story that the young people have written about living with a chronic illness. So. Awesome. And what's your role in the short film project, Curtis? So when Beck came up with this idea, I had actually come back to rejoin the program after taking a two-year break. And so the timing of her coming up with this idea and me joining just sort of coincided. And so she's like, oh, great, Curtis is here. He can help out. <laughs> no, it, didn't it didn't play out like that. She uh, very kindly asked, because I come from a film background, it's what I do as for a living. And uh, she just said, would you like to be part of co-facilitating this project? And I said, yep, sure, absolutely. So but it was interesting how it played out. We kicked off officially in mid-March and I made a flyer and it said, you know, okay, be here at the hospital this time, this date, can't wait to see you there. Posted it on the Facebook group and then three days later, um, yeah. Chips announced that they would be cancelling all face-to-face -face gatherings of any nature, of which everything sort of was put on hold momentarily. But then we thought, no, we got to pursue this and push forward. So we have not had a single session together in person, which is quite amazing. I mean, I, in my 
career per se. I've never had to do pre-production on a film all completely virtually. So it's new uh, for all of us. So, but in answer to, in answer to your question, my role is really to kind of pass on the, the knowledge of filmmaking down to the chippers, because that's the first step that we had to sort of cover was we had to teach these kids, well, I shouldn't say kids, young people about filmmaking before we could actually really kick off the project. So we, in, in the, I, I call it the, the Curtis way of making video lessons. I put video lessons together each fortnight that covered a different topic within film. So we did one on storytelling, one on art department, one on cinematography. I even managed to get uh, three of my good mates who were professional actors to come and share their experiences of what acting involves on a Zoom call, which was wonderful. So, you know, you get to see all these chippers who are really excited to be able to meet some actors and you get to see those reactions of, oh, I now know a famous person sort of thing. So, which is what I really wanted out of it. And yeah, so we are working on a project that really does mean a lot to the chippers. And what's great about it in terms of the research aspect of what we wanted to make a story about the chippers have been our research you know we didn't have to do any googling didn't have to do any reading all we had to do was just sit and listen to all these amazing stories and so this script that we've put together is a combination of so many different anecdotes that we gathered from all these chippers combined together to make a five minute short which we might extend to 12 minutes for our own sake just so that we can have a bit more fun and play around with these ideas it sounds like an amazing thing you guys have got going. Did you get involved in the musical last year? Yeah, I, I, I was roped in sort of last minute to play two characters. I played a, a really abusive PE teacher and I also played one of our former staff members, Jania, so, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, and it was great to be able to just see. So I suppose in terms of similarities and differences between working on a musical and a short film, the chippers weren't treading on completely unfamiliar ground. You know, they were, some of them had already had experience on what it's like to develop a story together and know how to collaborate with one another rather than having all the tasks fall on one chipper, if that makes sense. And uh, the short film that you're working on at the moment, uh, is it fiction or non-fiction? So I know you, you said you're using, say, anecdotes and stories that from all the chippers. Are you going to use those to create a like a fictional story rooted in reality, or are you just is it more of kind of say like documenting their experiences? It is pretty much a fictional story, but it, it a lot of it is based on true events. So yes, it is it is grounded on reality. I obviously won't explain what the plot is, but what I can tell you though is that we are exploring more deep down the theme of invisible illness because you know when we had this project we could have literally chosen to do anything we wanted you know chips is made up of various different illnesses but we all eventually we had about six or seven different storylines that we had to vote on but we all eventually came to this agreement you know let's see and raise awareness on the challenges of you know living with a chronic illness in which you look fine on the outside but there could be something really detrimental going on on the inside. And so that's what our story is going to revolve around. How's the timeline looking for it at the moment? Is the timeline being pushed back for like finalizing the production and has the competition actually been pushed back as well? Or is that, are they still going ahead at the same, same pace? 
<laughs> yeah, when we first started up the project, we were thinking we'd give ourselves a year to write and produce the short film and then enter it into next year's film festival. So they run it every year. And I think entries close sort of June, mid-year. So we will, we, we definitely won't be entering it this year. We had hoped to be sort of venturing into the production side of things in the second half of this year, but that's not going to happen now. We'll hopefully be filming next year and enter it into next year's festival. This is a question for all three of you. Have you had a favourite experience throughout your time in CHIPS, um, Harry and Beck as our leaders and Curtis, you know, as a chipper and someone who's been involved in the program for quite a while? I'm sure the programs look different for you from being a younger member to now a more experienced member. My, my favourite experience is actually from when I was a volunteer in the program. So that's how I started out in the program. I started volunteering for the, for the music program. But we were working on a band project and a songwriting project and we decided to perform those songs at a camp, um, at a CHIPS camp. And that was in September of 2014, I think. And the performance went great. That was really fun. It was on the second night of camp. But afterwards was the my f- first experience of a CHIPS disco, CHIPS party. And the theme was crazy hair. And actually, I have quite long hair. At that time, it was probably right down to my, my backside. And uh, one of the vo- other volunteers crimped my hair for the party night. And I just remember how much fun that night was and how free everyone was. And I felt I've been to a lot of music festivals and things in my time. And I love festivals because you just kind of get to do and be whoever you are and whoever, do whatever you want. And that was the kind of feeling I got on the Chips camp at that party was you can just be who you are and no one's judging you. And we boogied like it was 1999. So much fun. <laughs> I'd have to agree with Harry. I think camps are definitely the highlight. But if I was to talk specific moments, I would say there was a September camp last year or perhaps the year before when the chippers that were working on the musical did the first ever live performance. Um, and it was really raw. Some of them were reading scripts, holding onto the scripts in their hands. But it was just, it was the first time I'd heard it because I hadn't actually worked on that project. It was the first time I'd actually seen this or heard the script and seen the performance. And it was actually, I found it more powerful and more moving and when they'd polished it up and performed it on stage, it was just so raw and so real. And the story was just so heart-wrenching, but beautiful and, and really lovely. So I think that's something that, that's a moment that will always live in my memory. For me, to be perfectly honest, it has to be these projects that we've been working on over the last couple of months. It's been a wonderful way for me to connect even more with chippers. Um, even though I've been in the program since 2012, I still feel that I've crossed yet another hurdle of connection with these young people. And I also think working on these projects has sort of reinforced this idea that change or healing within a young person doesn't just happen through pharmacological intervention or one-on-one therapy. It can also happen through encouraging them to explore their own creativity and sharing that experience with others who are in the same boat. And quite frankly, it it forces you to kind of think about how you view yourself in the program as as well. And and just hearing all these stories about what chippers have to go through on a day-to-day basis is remarkable. And it's not said enough, but what an inspirational bunch of people. I'm constantly in awe of them every single day. And it's just something that, yeah, I've, I've always been amazed by. And, and to them, all, all the experiences that they go through, they've, they've adapted to it. It's their normality. But people like us, we go, 
I, I could never do that every day. Like, I don't know how I'd survive. So yeah, a very inspirational bunch of people. And it, it's been wonderful watching them explore their own creativity through projects like this. Curtis, I'm really interested to hear because like you said, you've been in the program for we're going eight years now. How was your experience, you know, when you started off as a new member, probably quite unsure of the program or you know, what was going on to now, you know, knowing the program very well and being one of those uh, experienced members? Yeah, good question. Well, it's funny you should say that because literally days ago, I came across a written document that I wrote up after I had my first day at Chips. I was 14 years old and I was so mesmerized by the experience. I was just like, I, I have to write up like a, a couple of paragraphs to send to Megan, our other facilitator, so she can put in the newsletter of just what an amazing program this is. Deep down, I'm quite an extrovert. So when it comes to meeting new people I don't mind um, and so I definitely wasn't the shy one when I rocked up first day but yeah there were, there were definitely uh, mentors and, and older chippers who most certainly showed me the ropes and were role models to myself of which I have now taken on the advice that they have given to me one-to-one -one, and also what I've observed over time and implemented within my own leadership and it's it's wonderful being able to sort of incorporate that quite properly, I suppose, being a peer leader of the program, but also through these projects, you know, I've never had to, I've never taught filmmaking before um, in sort of a, 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 a session by session format. So that's been wonderful to explore. Part of leadership for me is knowing how to sometimes be comfortable with making a fool out of yourself. And I'm quite good at that sometimes. And so when it comes to, because all I care about is making sure that these chippers really take their mind off their illness for as long as possible, just so they can enjoy themselves. And so if I have to look like an idiot to do so, so be it. If it gets a laugh out of them, great. And, and that's why these video lessons have been a lot of fun to make because each one, I dressed up in a different character for each one. So I dressed up as a police officer. I dressed up as an airplane pilot and I, I really went the full hard yard and even dragged up as the queen for one of them, you know? So, uh, and, and <laughs> that was a lot of fun. And by all means, uh, the staff did not at all encourage me to do that. That was all purely my choice. So yeah, I, I, I love being a mentor to these kids and whether that's just to run a, a fun activity or whether that's to sit down and talk about quite serious topics in which we do. So during the intake programs, you know, we don't ask them, okay, go around the room and explain what your illness is. No, it's not about that. It's about how can we relate to one another in terms of the challenges of living with, with a chronic illness. And the minute say something like school comes up or hospital admissions or waiting rooms, they're off. We don't really have to do any talking at all. And it's just wonderful to see them connect with one another. Last question for you all before I let you go. What does transitioning from chips look like, especially for someone like you, Curtis, who's been in the program for so long? Well, thankfully, I had a, a little bit of practice when I took two years off to purely focus on my studies at film college. And then one day I came across what we call warm fuzzies. So at camp, we have all these books that are laid out with every everyone's names written on it, including staff and nurses and volunteers. And we all write 
every single one of us writes, uh, you know, a lovely message to each other, a warm fuzzy. And I came across a collection I had after being away for two years and I read through them and it's like, I really miss this program. And so I wanted to come back. I can definitely say that I'm not looking forward to my last camp and being, because, you know, everyone who is on their last camp has to stand up in front of the room, say a few words and there's not a dry eye in the room. And so I can't say I'm looking forward to that day, but Look, I imagine, I, I know it won't be the last time I'll ever see the program again. I know that I'll revisit them in the very near future after that. We do in the program encourage all chippers once they're 25 to at least have one year completely away from the program, just so they know two years actually, so they uh, can get used to that uh, reality. I think that's pretty much it in a nutshell, Curtis. We sort of we say a very sad farewell at camp, at Gen Camp, to all the peak, uh, young people that are turning 25 that year. And then we ask them to have a break of at least two years. We're sort of tossing with maybe five years, depending. But I think, Harry, you might want to talk to this a little more. We are, like, we've got all sorts of ideas about getting ex-chippers back as mentors and as volunteers to help out with the program. We've got a couple that have come back sort of, I think about five or six years after they exited, they've now come back and they're um, mentoring and volunteering with the program. And that seems to work really well because the young people, because they can relate very well to the young people because they've got a lot in common. Some people exit the program quite happily and, you know, they've grown enough and have enough inner strength that they don't need to come back. But others we worry about when they exit the program we're like oh how are they going to go but generally most people sort of you know find their feet and move on yeah nice one oh i would just add that sometimes chippers leave before they turn 25 and that's often that's a really something to celebrate from our perspective because usually it's because they're quite busy in their in their life outside of chips and that's what we're trying to help create is trying to help encourage these young people to become independent, to, to finish their studies, to get jobs in the real world and just live the lives that they want to live. So yes, it is often sad and farewells are never fun, but it's also exciting to see that they're going on and getting on with life, which is what it's all about. Guys, thank you so much for joining me today. To finish off, can you just let everyone know uh, who might be suitable for the program, how to get involved here at the RCH of Melbourne or in Sydney? For Chips Melbourne, you can jump on our website. Um, it's rch.org.au forward slash chips. And we've got a referral form on there. Your referral form needs to be filled in by a health practitioner of some kind. It doesn't have to be from within the hospital. It can be from anywhere in Victoria. Actually, we do have participants from across, just across the border in southern New South Wales and a couple in Tasmania as well. So if you're willing to travel or video call in at the moment, it's probably easier. We're very happy to get referrals. There is also contact details for the Sydney Chips on our website. I just wanted to quickly add um, like a message to any young people who are considering if you are nervous, that is okay. It's important just to come in and be yourself. We really do encourage that you give it a go. You have the complete option of, you know, saying no at the end of the day, if it's not for you, that is totally fine. You'll be asked to either do an eight week group or a two day intensive. Either way, you're going to be grouped with a number of other new people who are going to be in the same boat and probably just as nervous as you as well. So we're all in this together and you will be very well cared for and CHIPS creates a safe place to ensure that all of your needs are met on the day of intensive or eight-week group. Thanks so much, guys.
as we've got our storytelling competition going on, I thought I would jump into our vault and pick out our interview from a couple of years ago with Australian author Jackie French. She has a lot of great tips and tricks that she uses and answers some of your questions. Let's take a listen. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Australian author Jackie French. Her career includes over 140 books, which have won over 60 national and international awards. She was awarded the 2015 Senior Australian of the Year and is the director of the Wombat Foundation, which raises funds to go to research in preserving the endangered northern hairy-nosed wombat. Welcome to the Livewire podcast, Jackie. Lovely, thank you. Uh, first off, how, how does it feel to have your stories read and shared uh, throughout the world? doesn't register because... Um I just live in a valley and I don't see people sharing them or reading them. Um, Often it seems as though I just send off a story by computer and the publishers very nicely send me a cheque twice a year for (laughs) publishing them. Um, So it it never really seems real that they are read across the world. Look, I do get a lot of mail, but occasionally there is incredible mail, like um, the New York Library calling its children's section um, the, um, the Diary of a Wombat section and they're, and, they're, and they're the wombats because so many of the kids there are Hispanic, they identify with the brown wombat and so they form the Wombat Club. So just occasionally you do get incredible ones like that. Or there's a school in Florida where all the kids decided to actually set up a hospital for injured wombats. Um, however, as the headmistress said, the problem is that the nearest wombats are across the ocean. <laughs> so um, possibly, possibly they might just like to raise funds instead, um, as they're probably not going to have many takers <laughs> in terms of injured, injured wombats. But yes, so occasionally you do get absolute gems like, like that one. Oh, that's, that's so lovely. So what, what's the process you have to go through from the, the first gem of a story idea that you get uh, through to having a book out and on the shelf? I think it probably varies from author to author. Most of the work in the book is the thinking. It's not writing. There are many, many bestsellers, and the writing is so bad you just get embarrassed, but you keep reading because it's an interesting story. So it's basically having an interesting story, interesting insights, being prepared to actually be open about those insights and put them down. I usually only write about things that I've been interested in most of my life. Mm. And then I, for about three years, I will think, okay, the ideas have come together. This is what the book will be about. This will be where it is. And I think about the book for about three years. And then when I get closer to it, I usually spend about three months really thinking about it and plotting it. And then I write it, and it takes about three months to write. And every morning, really the first thing in the morning before I get up or do anything, I just go there thinking about the scene, the part of the book I'm actually going to write today. And that's what I write. And look, sometimes it might be um, three pages, sometimes it might be 5,000 words. Um, It really just depends. If I sat down to write a book, I probably couldn't do it. It would be too terrifying. But just to write that scene, no, that's manageable. I can do that. So every morning I think, this is what I will do today. I can manage this and I'll do it. And then after a few weeks, I realised that, yes, this is a book. The shape of the book's there, the form of the book's, book's there. Um, this, is, this, is, this is actually working and, and, I, and I'm getting there. But I could never start a book thinking I'm going to write 70,000 words or 150,000 words. Mm. Um, it, I, I just couldn't do it. But one day, yes, I can do one day. So does that mean you have to, uh, you, you've got one story that you're working on at a time? Or do, do you have multiple... Um, 
one story I'm writing at a time, but there'll be other ones where I'm actually doing proofreading, correcting them, yeah. and there'll be there's always about ten or twenty ideas for books that I've, I've um, I'm more or less thinking about, but I only actually write one book at a time. What are some of the the biggest challenges that you have to face when writing or when thinking? Um, concentrating, focusing. Really sort of duct duct taping yourself to the chair or wherever your laptop happens to be and actually doing that work. It is so easy to find excuses not to do it. Even when I'm tired or in pain or what have you, if you focus, your writing is as good as it would be at any other time. There, mm. there are no excuses. And once you actually realise there are no excuses at all, then you actually sit down and you write. But also, too, it's a lot easier to rewrite or write the second time if it really is bad. It's a lot easier to trash it and write it again than it is to do it the first time. Rewriting is much, much, much easier. So it's actually getting getting those words down. Usually when I start each day, I'll go through what I wrote the day before and revise that and change that, and mm-hmm. so, so I've still got the thread. And then I'll, then I'll write that bit. The hardest part, though, is if you're writing well, you're giving the book. That can be hard because um, the books have got um, hard things in them to actually go through. So you're giving. You're giving the battles, you're giving the Holocaust, you're giving all of those things. And um, it is emotionally wrenching. But on the other hand, you're also um, eating all of those meals. That You're actually having all of those adventures. You're actually flying like a witch tower eagle. You actually are there. So you have all the good as well as the bad that, that you're living. And it is hard work. It is enormous fun. Um, it is incredible escapism. But also for me too, the hard stuff I put in my books is usually stuff that I've experienced, so I change it. And in a very strange way, it gets rid of, gets rid of the pain. I know that sounds odd. But when you actually write about something that frightened you or is a, re- is a really bad memory, you tend to remember the fiction better than the reality because, yeah. after all, with the reality, you only went through it once. When you write it down as fiction, um, you actually have to think about it, um, write it down, etc. You've, you've, you've gone through it several times. So in a very, very strange way, once you have written down something that frightened you, something something whatever it is that you really actually don't want to remember, in a very strange way, it takes away the force of it. All you're remembering is fiction, and you know it is fiction. Mm. So it's very it's very cathartic in that way. But you might also um, notice reading my books, there's an awful lot of incredibly good meals yeah. and a lot of other things in it. So I get to enjoy those too. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, you keep it quite balanced between the two. Well, yes, yes. And another thing, of course, about writing about meals is there's no calories. So <laughs> he's going to write about anything. <laughs> that's, uh, that's very true. Have you got a, a favourite book that you've read? At least about 50. But what I do have <laughs> is um, I've, got, I've got two bookcases of emergency books. If I have to go to hospital, if I have to take a friend to hospital, if something really bad is happening, these are the escapist books that I know are going to work. So I just grab half a dozen of them. I know that when I go into these books, I will just be in a world where I can escape into. But they're really good, powerfully, well-written, wonderful escapism. If there's an emergency, I can just actually grab my emergency books. I'm also very careful before I go to sleep as well. Quite seriously, your dreams are enormously influenced by what you've been thinking or what you've been reading before you go to sleep. So if you want incredibly good dreams, read a book. 
that you were actually like to be in, because you can't give you pleasant dreams. Unless you really want to dream about zombies, do not read a zombie book before you before you, before you go to sleep. So it really actually does make an enormous difference. And dreams are such a powerful thing. So if you read a book you actually enjoy, one you actually like to be there, means that you're more or less guaranteeing a holiday for yourself um, that night while you're asleep. Even if you can't remember your dreams the next day, you're going to have spent some time in a really, really, really good place when you dreamed. So again, um, I'm very careful with the choice of books I read. And usually the books I read before I go to bed are ones I've read before, mm. so that I actually know, yes, this is really what I want to dream about. At the moment I'm reading um, Cherry Pratchett's Weird Sisters before oh. I go to bed. Now, so it's a wonderfully exciting book and a very funny book. It would also be so much fun to actually live in the book. Yeah, that's, uh, that's lovely. And then, uh, I, I love the idea of having just an, uh, an emergency bookshelf. Now, look, I really recommend an emergency bookshelf, and don't touch those books unless it's an emergency. Yeah, I uh, know we've got some uh, questions that our members have sent through. First up, we've got one from uh, Fiona1996. Um, she says, uh, Jackie, you've always been one of my favourite writers. My question, with your historical stories, do you have to do a lot of research before writing them? I really don't do any research because I don't sit down to write the book until I know it incredibly well. Mm. So it's more that I'm, I'm fascinated by history. I'll read everything I possibly can, primary sources, things written at the time, etc. And then years later, I think, okay, that's where that book is going to be set. The very small amount of research I might do would be the meaning of a word in the language or whether that day was a Tuesday or a Wednesday, etc., etc., um, what the weather was like or, or something like that. By and large, I know it very, very well. If I had to do a lot of research... I wouldn't know the period well enough to write about it. Mm. The problem is you don't know what you don't know. So you need to have spent many, many years um, in that period to, to know it. The good thing, too, though, about writing historical fiction is I do know what I don't know. Yeah. So um, say I, I have no idea what happened in um, 1811 in a particular place or what happened in that six-month period. Writing fiction, you can actually just skip over that. You don't have to mention it. When you know what you don't know, um, all you put into the book is what you actually do know. Yeah. And you very, very carefully skip over the bits that you don't know. Uh, now we've got a question from Guide Serena. Uh, she asks, Hi, Jackie. I love your stories. Uh, and the characters in them are so well done and portrayed for the time the story is set in. So my question is, how much of a backstory do you give a character and how do you plan them? Do you plan simple details, like how they put their hair up or not? Everything. Complete, yeah. complete backstory. What they, what they ate for breakfast, what they'd want to eat for breakfast, did they put their hair up, um, what, what clothes are they wearing, what clothes would they like to wear, what do they want more than anything else. No character is too minor to have that. If a character is too minor to have a backstory, then you don't need it in the story. So yes, every character has a backstory. But increasingly too, I'm writing series, like the Miss Lily series, the Matilda series which means that even very minor characters can become major characters in the next book. So they always have a backstory. Yeah. Um, in Miss Lily's Lovely Ladies, for example, um, Miss Lily's maid is green. But in the next book, you actually discover that in World War One, um, when she's no longer needed as a lady's maid, she becomes a resistance worker with in the Belgian um, Gadam Blanche, which was a, a mostly female um, and the only really effective resistance movement in World War One, and also also spies as well. 
so that in the second book she's got a much larger role and in the third book which I'm I'm planning out now she's, she's, she's actually one of the main characters but in the first book you hardly ever see her I think I think there's about four or five sentences about her but I always knew that um, she has got an enormous backstory that before the series has begun, she and Miss Gilly have actually been espionage agents working for British intelligence, which, by the way, um, you now know, but actually no readers know because <laughs> they're not going to come out for another three books. But yes, so she's, she's got this magnificent, incredible backstory, and so is Jones, the butler. But you won't read about those for, for several books. But they needed to be there, so mm. they didn't actually conflict with, with, with anything. It's only, it's only when you read the next books that you actually realise how, how important they they are. Mm. So do, with, with those um, series of books, do you have to really, really kind of plan out the, the story um, as well so you know when you've sat down to, to write that first book where everything is going to go? Pretty much. Look, there, there are always changes, and you never really know what's going to happen. That's why I plan it out each day. I mean, it still is an adventure. Not everything is plotted yeah. out. But in terms of the structure, yes. With the Matilda series, I know pretty much what's going to happen in about the next 12 books. I'm very, very carefully setting it up. In the Matilda series, when you see Clancy now, Clancy is only four years old. But for his Christmas present, he's actually given a camera, which back then would actually be a box brownie. And cameras were very, very expensive and rare back then. And yet he's so longed for a camera. He's actually given a camera. He's going around taking photographs of people. In about eight or nine books' time, he is going to be a freelance photojournalist who's actually going to go missing in the middle of the Iraq War. Those who've read the series and the book Together Sunburn Country will know that his mother, Nancy, was a prisoner of war mm. um, of the Japanese in World War Two, And so she's going to face um, her son, Clancy, well, Clancy is simply going to go missing. Um, they don't know whether he's been killed. They don't know whether he's taken hostage. They don't know whether he's a prisoner or even where he's actually just jetted off to somewhere where there is no phone coverage and he can't contact them. Mm. Clancy, Clancy is simply going to vanish. But by then, he is going to be a world-famous photojournalist. But I needed to set that up many, many, many books and many, many years in advance that this is a kid who is always in the middle of everything, or rather not in the middle. He's always on the edges of everything, um, taking photographs, wherever there is something important or or something that people don't realise is important, um, but is important. Here is this little boy who has taken a photograph. Uh, And lastly, we've got a question from Holly who asks, uh, have you got any books that are coming up soon? I absolutely love your books, Jackie. Oh, always, always lots of books. Uh, but the next one is Koala Bear, mm. uh, spelt B-A-R-E. Um, <laughs> that's got a lot of full frontal nudity in it. Um, <laughs> however, it probably doesn't matter as it's about a koala, mm. and probably none of you, if you want to read it, because it's a picture book. So it's a very <laughs> funny picture book about this very stroppy koala um, who gets very annoyed when people put clothes on toy bears. <laughs> um, he is bear. The next book, though, that probably you're interested in is called Facing the Flame. It's in the Matilda series and the flame is both literal as in there is a bushfire but it's also it's also metaphorical about facing not so much facing the dangers you're afraid of but actually facing the dangers that you simply cannot escape. 
and it's how you face them. Gu Borgino in the book has been recently blinded in a car accident. She's actually undergoing therapy for review, the mobility of her hands. She always dreamed about being Australia's first female jockey because it's set in a period when women weren't allowed to be jockeys. Mm. And, of course, that, that has gone with, with her eyesight. She knows she never will be. But because she, she is able to manoeuvre through, through smoke, um, through flames, etc., she's able to save the horses when other people can't. Flinty, who knows the valley and knows the mountains and knows exactly where the fire will go, is able to actually set a fire which will, which will burn out the other fire. Mm. Um, it's about a whole range of characters who are facing not just the bushfire, but they basically triumphantly succeeding with other things in their lives as well in this book. A lot of, a lot of people's fears are coming back and they'll face them and they'll win. Sounds, um, sounds lovely. Well, I hope it is. Um, <laughs> I, hope, I, hope, I hope it's romantic. Um, I have to admit um, there is a villain in it. With the Matilda series, most of the characters are based on people that I know. There's no escaping that one. Mm. But um, the villain in the book is very definitely based on someone I knew who did pretty much what the bloke in that book did. Mm. And I have to say, I took a lot of malicious pleasure in <laughs> to him in the book. <laughs> Is that a, a, another form of catharsis? Well, let's just say it, 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 it's a very slight form of revenge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sounds uh, absolutely delightful, Jackie. Thank you so much for joining us today. No, look, an absolute pleasure. It was lovely. Thank you. And that about wraps it up for the Livewire podcast. Thank you so much for listening once again. Big thank you to our guests from Chips in RCH and for Tommy for organising that interview for us. As always, if you've got any thoughts or feedback about the Livewire podcast, do send them through to me on livewire.org.au or you can send them through to our email, livewire at starlight.org.au. If you've got any topics you'd like covered in future episodes, if you've got anything you want included in the Livewire podcast or any guests uh, you'd like us to approach, let us know we can see if we can make it happen. Until next time, I'm Tristan LW and I'll chat to you soon on livewire.org.au.